Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Rick. And uh, I'd like to welcome you all. This is the 50th year of the Thanksgiving banquet. Uh, and for those of you who uh, were at the gratitude breakfast, um, a few of you said, well, maybe that went a little overboard, you know. And uh, not to worry, you know, to, tonight, uh, even Dave, we're moving along at a fast clip here. You like that, huh? And, and you know, and um, so uh, we're going to keep it short. And I promise you, it's, it's going to be short. I, I'd like to maybe tell you briefly... Uh, how I got to my first Thanksgiving banquet. You know, I was born. Uh, that didn't go over as good as Tom said it would, but in all seriousness, um, 15 years ago, uh, this tradition got started, the tradition of uh, describing a little bit what our banquet had been like uh, for, at that time, the first 35 years. And the man that uh, was asked to start that tradition... Uh, was a noted historian around the greater Cincinnati area, especially dealing with uh, the river boats and uh, the, the river history of Cincinnati, and uh, very eloquent in his uh, delivery. And uh, I know at my first uh, Thanksgiving banquet, I certainly enjoyed him. And uh, the committee and myself and all of us, I know, would like to give a, a deep thanks who, to Don Deming, who's here with us tonight. Uh, he's going to do the countdown. Thanks, Don. Don did this talk for uh, uh, 15 years. He did it from 1976 through 1990, uh, except for 1984. Uh, he broke his foot that year, and uh, in, and in 1989, uh, Ed Ringhauser uh, did the talk. And uh, I don't know if Ed's here tonight. If he is, and if he's not, thank you very much, Ed. You did a very eloquent job. Anyway, our first uh, Thanksgiving banquet uh, was 50 years ago in 1941. It, uh, in 1941 in November, we had three, well, actually two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the third one was starting up. They were on Monday and Thursday night, and they were at the Metropole Hotel. They were held in the mezzanine area. The fellowship at that time was uh, six months old, uh, a little over six months old. Our first meeting was, as some of you remember from the breakfast, it was uh, May 7th of uh, the same year of 1941. Uh, and, you know, so the, these, uh, we had about 24 sober members at that time, and uh, approximately half of them had families to go to. The other half, uh, since it was a meeting night anyway, uh, decided that they'd all eat some kind of dinner in celebration of Thanksgiving. They'd been roaring tornadoes through the lives of their families and were really no longer welcome uh, to many places. So they all went and got their individual meals, and as they... The, the Metropole wasn't too high class of a hotel. It's not here anymore. And they stepped over some of the future members of the of Alcoholics Anonymous and made their way to the little corner of the mezzanine where they uh, had their 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 meeting and uh, and their banquet. And what it was, you know, they all were sad that they didn't probably have families to go to, but they were all very grateful for they had found in one another uh, a feeling of hope, 
a feeling of gratitude, a feeling of uh, thanks, thanks for living, thanksgiving that uh, Don has talked about so for so many years. Next few years, there was no banquet. The next banquet took uh, simply due to our involvement in the war in Europe, and uh, AA became a little sparse during those times, and, and it just didn't happen. The next banquet was held in uh, 1945. The Oak Street Center in June had been acquired. It had become the hub of AA in Cincinnati, and it was a cooking school, and they had all these ovens, so, you know, they decided they'll cook up a bunch of turkeys, and the members brought in the, the different side dishes, the different vegetables, the wives, and everybody, and they came, and that's where a lot of them celebrated Thanksgiving. That went on for quite a few years there. And then it was noted that one of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time was the maitre d' at the Gibson Hotel downtown, and... Uh, he decided, well, I can get this all a room. So in a, around 1950, approximately, we had our first dress-up uh, similar to this Thanksgiving banquet at, at the Gibson Hotel. And uh, we were there for a few years, and and uh, the manager of the hotel uh, decided, well, it was a Saturday night, and, and, you know, right around the holidays we'd moved from Thanksgiving, and he thought the room would be better utilized by... Uh, uh, other groups that had not yet found the secret of not drinking. And so that's how that goes. That's, of course, Don's old uh, thing there. From from there, we moved to the Marymount Inn. We were there for a couple years. For some reason, the manager found out that uh, we were a pretty good crowd, so we went back to the Gibson for a while. Uh, then we, uh, as the prices went up, we decided to be a little conservative and keep the price down. We moved to the Goodwill Industries. We were there for quite a few years. And uh, from there, we then we got a little grandiose. We moved up to the Lookout House, and we were there for a few years. And, uh, and then we had to scale down a little bit, and we went down to the convention center, and we we were there for quite a few years. Then we ended up at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and we were there for a, a good, just the, the majority of the 1970s, we were at the Beverly Hills Supper Club. Uh, that's when Don gave his first talk there in, in 1976, and unfortunately, uh, 79 was our last banquet at the Lookout House, um, not, excuse me, not the Lookout House, at Beverly Hills, for in March of the, the following year, we had that tragic fire. Uh, so we looked for some uh, for some new homes. We went uh, for one year. We went to the Netherland Hilton. We went to the Drawbridge Inn, and we ended up one year at the Vegas Club. And uh, the cellar dwellers at Oak Street loved that name, the Vegas Club. And and uh, then we ended up in 1983. We ended up at the Tangerman Center. We were at the Tangerman Center for three years, and in 1986. We came to Music Hall, and this has been our home ever since then. So, as you can see, the banquet has moved around Cincinnati, and it's and through all those years, that uh, feeling of gratitude and thanks for living has prevailed. Uh, from the 25 members in the two meetings in uh, November of 1941 to November of 1991, where we now have over 425 meetings plus 100 institution plus meetings here in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, from the 25 members, we have a very loosely and approximately estimated 10,000 members of Alcoholics Anonymous here in the greater Cincinnati area. I, I for one, uh, this Thanksgiving banquet for me has meant an awful lot. It's a, it was the first big event I ever came to. I, I had been around Alcoholics Anonymous for many years, but 
when I was just a few months sober, I, I went to the Tangerman Center and I had, uh, heard Don give his eloquent talk and the speaker and I got the tape and I was living in Connecticut and I listened to that tape at least a hundred times and it, it, it's always meant something very, very special to me as I know it does to all of you and I uh, hope you all come back next year. Thank you very much. Rick, thanks for that brief talk. This is the uh, the real fun part. Um, I had not met Jerry before um, tonight or this late afternoon, and um, I met him at the airport. And immediately, um, I felt a connection. Uh, he is a uh, just a very, very, very warm and loving person. And uh, from hearing his uh, story, um, I don't think he was that way. Uh, for many years. So he is uh, a walking, talking, great example of Alcoholics Anonymous and what it can do for you. And with that, Jerry J. from Dallas, Texas. Everybody left. I am Jerry Jones, and I'm an alcoholic. In Texas, we give our sobriety date. We say if you don't have one, you—I mean, you don't—if you don't give one, you probably haven't got one. So, uh, by the grace of God, I've been sober since January the first of 1973. I probably am going to tell the truth tonight because those lights are shining my eyes the way they used to do that, you know. And uh, <clears throat> it's been very difficult for me to come to Cincinnati. I started trying to come to Cincinnati about four years ago, I believe it was. I was scheduled to speak at one of your functions here, and then I had a disc blow out in my back and had surgery, so I had to cancel. They said not to worry, come back next year. The next year I went to the airport, checked in, got ready to leave. American Airlines announced that the flight was canceled. I called my contact in Cincinnati and said, the flight is canceled. And he said, why? <laughs> I said, weather. And he said, is the weather bad there? And I said, no, the sun is shining here. He said, so is the sun shining here. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why American Airlines did that to us, but they did. Last year, you gave up on me. You didn't call me at all. <laughs> This year, you called again. I went to the airport this afternoon, checked in, got on the airplane, and sat there. And I waited. After 15 minutes, it was obvious that something was wrong, and they announced that they didn't have a captain for the airplane. It was rumored he was somewhere in the airport, but they didn't know where. <clears throat> Forty-five minutes later, when he got there, I wasn't sure I wanted to go with him. <clears throat> I think they found him in a bar somewhere. I really did. Anyway, I got here, and I'm very glad to be here. Already found I got a lot in common with the drunks in Cincinnati. You all are about the same variety as we have in Texas. Even the name of the town, Cincinnati, 
Asked Dave, he says, that is a Indian name. Means something like City of Brotherhood or Brotherly Love or something like that. South of Dallas, we have a town that has an Indian name. It's called Waxahachie. Waxahachie. Get that. Uh, I can use some other words you may have trouble with later on, too, but I won't. Waxahachie, I believe, the natives tell me, means buffalo manure. Tonight, I was... uh, <laughs> Tonight I was uh, looking at the uh, tapes over here and noted that you had some from uh, one of my old friend Wino Joe from Tyler, Texas. Gosh, what a great storyteller he was. And he loved to tell the story about Waxahachie. He said that in the early days of Texas, the uh, Easterners felt like we had no culture. And they felt this great missionary spirit to come to Texas and teach us culture. And on one occasion, a traveling opera company came to Waxahachie, Texas, to teach us about opera and the finer things of life. Now, this was a poor opera company. They didn't have enough money to send all their players, so what they would do is go into these small towns and uh, set up shop in the gymnasium, local gymnasium, and they would uh, interview or, or uh, audition people for their cast, generally the non-singing roles. They brought the singers along, and, and in this one particular opera that they were doing, they needed a heroine, a non-singing heroine, and they found this lady in Waxahachie, and they taught her her part, gave her one of those hats with the horns, you know, and those hubcaps that they put on, and uh, <laughs> she, uh, she was to be stabbed by the hero in the final moments of the opera. And she had to die in a very lifelike and realistic way. And she practiced. And she got pretty good at dying. She could give little quivers and little quirks and quicks and, you know, did a very realistic job of dying. And so the night came when they gave their great performance and they went off without a hitch until they got to the final scene when the hero, who is the tenor in the show, whipped out his rubber, da- rubber dagger and stabbed her. And she fell over and flopped and kicked and did all those things for a moment and said, this tenor said, as he knelt beside her, holding her head in his arms. And he said, oh, my love, too late, my love. What have I done, my love? And the town drunk stood up in the back of the room and said, I'll tell you what you've done. You killed the only whore in Waxahachie. I just love spiritual stories like that. (laughs) We all see the world with different eyes. (laughs) Some people saw that as a show, and he saw it as the end of his social life. You know, my God. (laughs) Not very far from here. In the summer of 1935, something got started that uh, has changed the world. Certainly it has changed our world. 
When Bill and Bob met in the gatehouse of the Cyberling Estate in Akron and began to share, they brought together a number of very important things. They brought together some knowledge that had been transmitted to Bob by a physician named Dr. Silkworth who told him about the disease of alcoholism and that he had a physical problem with alcohol, an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. Bill had received the bad news in 1934, and that was that he probably was going to have to be locked up or he was going to go completely wet brain, insane. And he didn't have much doubt about that. And he had little hope. Something else happened to him that year. He uh, ran across a guy named Eddie, who in turn had run across another group of alcoholics, who had been contacted initially by a man named Roland. And Roland was an alcoholic, the son of a wealthy industrialist, in the United States, and he had been sent to Switzerland to spend time with Dr. Carl Jung. And Dr. Carl Jung treated him for a year for alcoholism. And at the end of the year, he turned him loose, pronounced him cured, and I don't know whether Roland got to the ship or not before he got drunk, but he hadn't been gone long. When he came back, baffled and confused and bewildered as we are, And Dr. Young said, I did not realize that you were an alcoholic of the type you are. I have never known anyone with your state of mind and body to be cured by medical science. The story is in our book. And Dr. Dr. Young uh, told him, he asked, was there no hope for me? And he said, yeah, there's there's one, one, one small sliver of hope. And that is if you can have a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening, a phenomena occurs once in a while to people like you, which revolutionizes their whole way of thinking, the way they react to their fellow man, to God's universe, to the world in general, shifts, morals change, almost overnight. And with that damning message, he turned Roland Loose, who found a group called the Oxford Movement. And they had some spiritual principles that are as old as the universe itself that they put to work in their lives. And they had worked these principles with and introduced the other alcoholics who met Ebby, and Ebby in turn met Bill and brought about Bill's spiritual awakening in Towns Hospital. The other ingredient that brought together in that gatehouse in Akron was a uh, another interesting thing, and that was that for six months, Bill had been trying to sober up drunks. He knew he had something remarkable that happened to him, and he was just really trying to make it happen again for other drunks. And he preached to them, man, I know he had that fervor that we get when we get sober. He was going to save the world, and he had no luck. But that day in Akron, he had had a financial failure. He was depressed and despondent and frustrated, a long way from home with very little money, in the Mayflower Hotel, 
and he heard the music and the noise of a drinking crowd in the bar. Called him like the sirens called him. And he had a choice. He could go in the bar, and in that moment, though, he stopped and remembered in those months past when he had really needed a drink, one thing had helped above all else, and that was to work with another alcoholic. And so instead of going to the bar, he went down down to the end of the lobby and found a a group of uh, telephone numbers for churches. And he began to call around town to try to find a drunk to talk to. And he had to call several people before he found someone who would give him a drunk to talk to. And, of course, that drunk was too busy to talk to him that day. Matter of fact, Dr. Bob had passed out under the potted palm he had brought home for his wife for Mother's Day and couldn't come that day. But the next day he came and was going to give Bill 15 minutes. And we had two people in that room who brought together the knowledge of alcoholism, the knowledge of the solution for alcoholism being a spiritual awakening, and a mutual need. The need of the sober alcoholic to serve and the need of the alcoholic who was still suffering at that moment for a solution. And the magic happened. And here we are today. Fifty years. Thanksgiving Day has been celebrated by the alcoholics in Cincinnati and all around the world. All around the world. It's spread. If you don't believe that there's a power greater than us, just study the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's absolutely no way you can get from where we started in that gatehouse in 1935 to where Alcoholics Anonymous is today without something pretty powerful working in our lives. Alcoholics Anonymous has given us a way to have a first-class life. We don't ever have to settle for second class at all again. And we have a great deal to be thankful for because we didn't deserve what we got. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous looking for justice. (laughs) And today I'm very happy to have mercy. I... uh, We come from that strange, baffling world of alcoholism. It is, uh, it's mystifying. You don't know what's wrong with you. You don't understand why it's going the way it is. You don't care why it's going the way it is. You want to quit, you want to quit caring all those terrible thoughts, the loneliness, the isolation, all those things are happening to you, and you continue to go downhill and you can't stop. And if you're really lucky, one day you have a moment of clarity when you can ask for a little help. And they begin to talk to you about the same things that Bill and Bob talked about in that gatehouse. Alcoholism is a disease. Did you believe that when you got here? I thought it was a cop-out. A bunch of wimpy people saying they had a disease but they just drank too much. I drank too much, and I was just... The reason I drank too much was because I was some kind of a moral leper or was just sorry. I don't know. Something had happened to me. I I lost all my moral fiber, my willpower, whatever it was. I didn't know what it was, but I didn't think I had a disease. And it was only after I'd been here for a while that I really began to understand the way this thing works. And like everything else that's happened in my life since I came to AA, nothing was wasted while I was drinking. Those years and all the experiences I had, going all the way back to my childhood, I found useful information. 
uh, experiences in life that I don't have to relive. Lessons that were taught to me or shown to me and examples of what's going on in the world that, that I, uh, I just didn't, I didn't have any use for before I got here. But now they helped me a lot. The best description I know of alcoholism was the story of, about my dog Patches. When I was a kid, I was raised on a farm out in West Texas, way out in the country, and had a bulldog. His name was Patches. He was an English bulldog mostly. He had a couple other things in there, but I don't know what they were. He was a hero. Out there on the farm a few weeks before this story, he had run across a badger, which is a bad news for dogs. And Patches got hold of the badger, and they had a hell of a fight. The pat- the- Patches weighed one pound less than the than the badger. We know because after about an hour, he finally killed the badger, and we were able to weigh both of them. And just to show you a little about his character, every day for a week after that, old Patches would go up there in the field and find that carcass and just pick it up and just shake hell out of it, just in case reincarnation happened early or something like that. Bad old dog. Hero. Had no problems. Laying in our front yard, you know, maybe a fly buzzing around his ear, but no problems. Everybody loved him. He was well-fed. No competition. It was just a great life. And into our yard from a neighbor's place came a big old ugly boar hog. Bad-looking dog. Hog. Long yellow tusk. Big. And Patches made a decision to go get hold of the hog. Now, when bulldogs make those kind of decisions, they don't make them lightly. And he got out there and got hold of the hog, and we had a problem in our barnyard. He was barking. The hog was squealing. My dad came running out of the barn and saw what was happening. He was out there kicking and cussing hogs and dogs. I saw my dog was in a real big mess, and so I went into the fray trying to save my dog. My mother saw her little kid getting ready in this, going into this melee, you know, and so she runs out there and she's wringing her hands and trying to pull me out of it. Dad's trying to get the dogs off us. Everybody has got a problem. Chaos reigns. All at once, everybody knows the solution. Patches turn loose to the hog. Patches turn loose to the hog. That's the solution. Well, he didn't turn him loose, but he came off. And as he came off, the old hog wheeled around there and cut his shoulder wide open with a, one of those tusks, and we, we caught him. And we physically shut him down. We stopped him. We took him under the water hydrant and cooled him off and patched him up and turned him loose. And he went right back and got hold of the hog again. <laughs> And again, it was the same deal. They were squealing and barking and cussing and kicking and wringing of hands and dust was flying and all this stuff was going on and everybody once again knew the solution to the problem. Patches turned us to hog. We knew it. Hog knew it. Everybody knew it except Patches. Well, we got him off one more time. This time we recognized that Patches was not himself. A psychologist would say that his emotional nature was on top of his intellect. He was obviously out of control, and he needed to be committed. And so my dad tied him to the water hydrant, and I was his counselor. And I sat with him, and we thought about his life. Asked deep and penetrating questions like, have you ever had a good day catching hold of hogs? How does your family feel when you get hold of hogs? 
Why do you do it? Have you ever had success doing it? All those kind of things. And it was evident after a couple of hours I'd healed him. I'd cured him. His tongue was hanging out a little bit, and he had that silly little grin that dogs get in their face, you know, and had a little stub of a tail that was wagging back and forth. So Dad had run the hog off. I went and told my father, the warden. I said, uh, Warden, he's well. And Dad came and looked and says, I believe you're right. I believe you're right. And so we turned him loose. He had to go two miles to find hog next time. <laughs> Does that remind anybody in here of any of your personal experiences? Did anybody ever say, turn loose the hog? Did it ever appear to you that if you just could turn it loose, it'd be all right? People talk to me that way. You'd be a better father, man, lawyer, whatever, if you just didn't drink. If you just didn't drink. And I thought, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, that not drinking was what I needed to learn how to do. But that's not the problem. The problem is not to stop drinking. Of course, we have to be stopped drinking, but the problem is not starting again. You see, that old bulldog's problem wasn't the hog hanging on to the hog, it was what sent him out there in the first place, and what sent him back again and again and again. Turned out it wasn't hogs at all. He caught hold of a cattle truck about two or three months after that, and uh, he just caught one cattle truck. (laughs) And we have a lot of folks out there that just catch one cattle truck. Lots of people who have our problem don't ever get here. Don't ever... For some reason, have this opportunity. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and remembered my story and began to understand something about it, I did notice that stopping drinking didn't solve all my problems. I was able to stop for a while. I wasn't sure when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous what was wrong with me. And if I could tell you one thing tonight, there's somebody in here thinking about going out and drinking again. Somebody really thinking it's about time to go. And let me tell you something. When you leave here, if you leave here, think seriously about what's going on before, but remember also that you are responsible for the way you drink, the amount you drink. I had I had a pretty colorful drinking career as a young man, and later on I got married and had kids, but I never stopped drinking. I loved to drink. I just got I just could get excited about drinking whiskey. I could be working out there on the farm and think about a week from tonight we're going to go to town and get drunk. And by gosh, I'd begin to get excited and I'd think about how what are we going to buy, where we're going to put it in the car, going to load up the car with booze, going to start that car up, and there's no telling where we'll be the next morning. And there wasn't. No telling where we were going to be. First thing we often asked was, where are we? <laughs> Followed closely by what we do. And I wasn't the only one to know. We sat around and pieced it together. You remember you did that? And oh yeah, and then that guy, oh yeah, oh my God, we did that, didn't we? We'll never be able to go back there again, will we? But the major difference was with me, I was the guy who always said, let's do it again. Let's go again. And I kept different groups going and doing it again, over and over again. 
but I moderated somewhere along the way. And I got married, and I had kids, and went to law school, and worked hard, had success. I had success. I had the things that you're supposed to be happy when you have them. I was an achiever, and I kept achieving. Only problem was, every time I achieved something, some position, some a car, or some money, or something like that, it was never quite enough. And I always needed a little more, or a little better, or a little different. And when I won, I felt like I was lucky, and when I lost, I felt like I deserved it. And I could never get my insides to match my outsides. And I was in a constant state of tension on the inside of myself. I was doing things trying to impress people I didn't like. I was making myself... I was competing in things that I did not want to compete in. I've taken some real country whippings rather than tell a guy or let anybody know I was afraid of him. It was better to take the whipping than it was to let somebody know you were afraid. And alcohol helped me. Helped me to kind of ease those periods over. And I needed little vacations from life. And so I kept taking vacations. Alcohol was my solution. Now the problem was that I didn't learn anything from my experiences. All I did was try to obliterate my experiences, try to block them out. And so I went on through my life, and I really didn't learn much about living at all. When we get to Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't know much about living. We don't know why our, you know, why we failed. What was the cause and conditions of our failure is the way our books describe it. Every, every generation has to learn how to live all over again. You know that from your children and from your parents. They tried to teach me, you know, they tried to teach me how, how to live. Dad tried to teach me the lessons that he had learned. And he told me one time, Jerry, you're killing yourself, you're ruining your family, you're, you're working too hard, you're after trying to make too much money, you're doing all these things. Don't you realize that all you'll ever make out of this life is, your, is board and room anyway? And I said, that's fine for you, old man. You got your sack full. But I ain't got mine full yet. And I, I couldn't hear him. I couldn't learn from him. So I had to go learn for myself. The only thing that alcohol was doing was keeping me from learning very much. And as you, with all of you, my solution ultimately became my problem. And as it became my problem, we had lots of problems in my house. And I was solving symptoms rather than looking at the real problem. I couldn't see the problem with alcohol. Or I couldn't face the problem with alcohol. I couldn't, you couldn't talk to me about alcohol and how I drank because you didn't understand. You didn't understand. If you, if you had the kind of wife I had, you'd drink too. Or if, you was, if my wife was talking to me about it, I'd explain to her, if you had the kind of bosses or people that I work with, you'd drink too. Nobody, they weren't all over in the, same, the room at the same time. And so I rationalized and denied and did all those things you did. And I, I would not face reality. When I, I was a heavy smoker when I was drinking, and I, I uh, oftentimes got in bed or got put to bed and would not have all my business taken care of and waken later in the night to have to try to find the bathroom. And sometimes I did uh, find the bathroom. Uh, 
but I would I was an automatic smoker and when I swung my feet out of the bed didn't seem no matter how much I'd had to drink or how I'd got in bed my, I could always reach out and, and find my cigarette lighter and my cigarettes and I'd light up a cigarette and I'd find the bathroom and I'd come back and sit on the edge of the bed and, and I was tired really tired but I needed to finish that cigarette and a lot of times I'd have to kind of lay back in bed and smoke my cigarette now I'll admit that once or twice once or twice nothing nothing serious the way my, this my wife overreacted about this but I burned a couple of little holes in the covers and I explained to her that's why we used that pretty thing that cloth on the top was to cover up little defects like that why else would you have it and didn't pay attention to it at all until one night I woke up and there was a pretty good sized fire going on my side of the bed and we got it out it's hard to explain that uh, if any of you ever do that uh, I've heard of an explanation now that I wish I'd known and what you ought to tell people about that is you think it was on fire when you got in uh, <laughs> But I didn't know that. All I knew the next morning is that the bed was kind of soggy on my side, and I needed to get the hell out of the house. And I shaved and got out of there. Man, I'm gone. And as I went out the door, I told my wife to buy any kind of bed she wanted to buy. And came home that night, and I don't know why, but she had written me a letter. She was right there in the house, but she had written this letter. And the letter, I read the letter. She was kind of strange in those days. Uh, it said, Dear Jerry, I've been talking to you about your smoking and your drinking. It's now reached the point where I can no longer go to sleep at night without worrying about the safety of our children and my own life. You've simply got to do something about your smoking and your drinking. And I'm a responsible guy. And she was right. And you know what I did, don't you? I quit smoking. It never occurred to me to stop drinking. Now, quitting smoking wasn't easy for me. I had a terrible habit of smoking. I mean, it was hard to quit. And I couldn't give myself the idea that I couldn't possibly have another cigarette any time in my life. I had to keep a pack of cigarettes on beside my chair, or I knew I'd go out and buy some. And I passed out or blacked out night after night after night and never smoked another cigarette. I have enormous willpower. But I had something else with alcohol. Because a little later, my wife, God love her, went completely haywire. She, she began to go to an organization that likes of which you have never heard. I noticed she wasn't around some, and I got to inquiring where she was. We were, we were about to end our marriage. We'd given it another six months to run, and, and the only reason I was worried about it was that my daughter one day told me that I asked her where her mother was, and she said she's gone to a meeting, and I said, what kind of a meeting? And she said, a family meeting, Daddy. And I figure if she's gone to some kind of meeting where they're discussing families at my stage in the game, we better have me a representative present while they're talking about that. And when she gets home, I ask her where she's been. And my wife is, I've cross-examined hundreds of slippery witnesses. But I'll tell you what, none of them can touch my wife. When my wife didn't want to give me information, it's like pulling teeth to get anything from her. Where have you been? Out. Out where? Oh, at a shopping center. Where? Over by Preston Road. What did you do there? Oh, I saw some people. 
Who were they? You wouldn't know them. And we started chipping away at this thing, chipping away and narrowing the field, cutting her in, closing her down until finally I got it, got it, I got a word. Al-Anon. What is an Al-Anon? I'd never heard of that word before. I didn't want to appear ignorant. Uh, so I, my mind's wheeling and I'm thinking about what could be an Al-Anon. Al-Anon. The nearest I could guess, it must be some sort of aluminum kitchen utensil. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. I couldn't believe what she started telling me. It was a family organization. The family and friends of people who had problems with alcohol got together in a public meeting and discussed their common problems and applied some sort of solution to this common problem. It sounded to me like I was being taken to a public meeting and my problem discussed. Now, I, in my own mind, was a big-time lawyer in Dallas. And big-time lawyers don't have alcoholic problems discussed in public meetings. You just don't do that. And, and it doesn't even happen in Cincinnati. I haven't looked here, but if you go to the Yellow Pages tomorrow, they advertise all kinds of specialties under lawyers today, but you will not find a caption for alcoholic lawyers. <laughs> Even drunks don't want alcoholic lawyers. <clears throat> I, uh, I listened to her tell me about a wonder, this wonderful place and what it all happened to, and then I began to explain to my wife that what was going to happen. Someone was going to see her in that public meeting. If you needed an alcoholic to be present at that meeting, I was the only candidate anyone would know for perhaps 2,000 miles. The moment someone saw her who knew her would know that I was supposed to be the alcoholic, they would call downtown, tell my partners that Jerry was an alcoholic, and the partners would call me in. I knew what they were going to say. We already had two alcoholics. <clears throat> I'd heard them discussed many times, and I knew what we were going to do with them. They were powerful people, but we were going to get rid of them just as soon as we could. And I wasn't very powerful. Matter of fact, I wasn't doing real good at work these days. And if I was, you know, if they had any excuse at all, I'm gone. And I explained to her, I said, have you noticed that I am the only one who brings money home? I'm the only one that, that provides any food or this house. And when, when you get me fired down there at that law firm, I'm not going to be able to bring any money home. And it's going to stop. And when it stops, we have a mortgage on everything. And when you don't pay mortgages, they come and get whatever it is that you haven't paid on. And we're not talking about college educations now, Billy. We're talking about standing in the streets of Dallas naked in the middle of the winter with our children. This is serious. This is life-threatening. And I explained to her, you've got to quit going to them damn meetings. And she said, I need to go. And I said, please, please don't go to those meetings. She said, I think I'm going to go. I said, okay, if you go, I'll kill you. <laughs> she said, I'm going. So we, uh, we had a running battle for a long time about this. I couldn't leave her alone. I picked fight after fight after fight with her. One night I started to pick a fight with her. I'd like to sneak up on fights. You know, just kind of walk in and say, how you doing, honey? Everything going all right? Have a nice day? Yes. 
then I'd start gathering my facts for my fight. And I said, uh, you've been, you think I'm an alcoholic, don't you? She said, I don't know if you are or not. I said, well, that's damn funny. You've called me an alcoholic for years. And she said, yes, but I was wrong. I said, you mean, you don't think I'm an alcoholic anymore? And she said, I don't know whether you're an alcoholic or not. It doesn't matter whether I think you're an alcoholic or not. It matters only whether you think you're an alcoholic or not. She said, you're the only one that can use that information at all. And if you don't believe you're an alcoholic, I'm told there's not anything that anybody can do to help you or that you can do to help yourself. And I made a mistake. I made a mistake right there. I made a mistake that no good trial lawyer ever makes. In the middle of a hotly contested fight, I asked a question when I had the goose's idea what the answer would be. I said, well, if I wanted to find out if I was an alcoholic, how would I do it? Oh, my friends. They've got an answer for you. And the answer is, try some controlled drinking. Just try some controlled drinking. What's controlled drinking? Drink two drinks a day, every day, for six months, no more, no less. And if you can do that, you're not an alcoholic. I said, you've been trying to get me to stop drinking for years, right? She said, that's right. Is it my understanding now that you want me to continue to drink for at least six more months? And she said, yes, I do. And I realized I was dealing with a really sick woman. And this conversation was going absolutely nowhere. The fight was blown. I just got the hell out of there. But I couldn't forget the information. You see, I'd asked for the information. She shocked me with the answer. I couldn't believe what she was saying. In the course of months that followed that, I began to think more and more about how I could get her out of Al-Anon. And the only way I could save myself was to pass that damn test. And so, without telling anyone in the world, I decided I would start taking the test. I had to change the test a little bit. Uh, well, you don't understand. See, two drinks didn't do me any good. But I had a good-sized glass and three drinks. I'm going to have two, I call them martinis, they were beef eaters gin. I was going to have two beef eaters gin before dinner. I was going to eat. I was going to walk slowly into the bar, have a nice big brandy after dinner. No one could fault me for that kind of drinking. That was sophisticated, cosmopolitan, slick, smooth, hip drinking. Only problem I had was, when I took the second drink, <clears throat> toward the end of it, <clears throat> the thought would come to me. Well, that's about all the martinis tonight. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Followed by another thought, which was, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you, uh, are you over 21? Who supports this damn family? Who has to go down and work every day and put up with all those damn rotten, mean clients and other lawyers? Who has all this pressure on him? Are you going to let a bunch of little old ladies in tennis shoes tell you how to drink whiskey? The answer was, hell no, no. And I'd go to the bar and drink what I wanted to drink, by God, which was the bottle. Or, or, I'd walk to the bar and I'd think, I've had a bad day. 
I have had a B.A.D. bad day. I am not, I am not going to take this damn test today. And I drink the bottle. Or I could forget the test for two or three days. But inevitably, I'd remember the damn thing again. I was the only one in the world who knew he was taking the test, and I was flunking it over and over again. I gave it a fair shot. I ran the test about a year and a half. And it whipped me like I have never been whipped in my life. I came out of the end of that deal knowing alcohol had me. I did not have alcohol. And so when I finally got the scales from my eyes, when I could listen a little bit, I knew that there was something physically different about me. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous not because I wanted to come, not because I thought it would make a positive difference in my life. I came here because I didn't know anywhere else to go. I didn't like you. I didn't like what you did. I didn't like your little funky signs on the wall, your little Sunday school sayings. I didn't like the way you hugged each other and patted around on each other all the time. I didn't like the high school hairy way you act. A grown man stand up and says, my name is Jerry, and everybody says, hi, Jerry. Oh, Thought I was in the Royal Order of the Moose or something. My goodness. Thought they were going to have me teach me a grip before long or something. Else. And you know what they did at the end? They stood up, held hands. Everybody held hands and said the Lord's Prayer real slow. Why? And if I could, if anywhere else I could go, I would have gone there. And the only reason, the only reason that I stayed was because I am a cynic and a skeptic and a close observer. And I tested every damn thing you said, and I examined you closely, and I knew something was going on here. It wasn't long until I began to recognize that some of you guys had had as much to drink as I had. And I carefully watched you, and I began to see something, not in what you said, but in the way you acted and what you did. I began to recognize that I was dealing with some real people, and I was attracted into this program. And as I was attracted, I began to listen. And you began to tell me things about myself that I didn't believe in the beginning, selfishness and self-centeredness. This was the root of our problem, that there's a power greater than ourselves that will and can and will have sought come to us. I'd been looking for God all my life. From the time I was a little old bitty kid, I'd been looking for God. I wanted God. I demanded God. I'd been baptized, dedicated, rededicated, sprinkles, dunked, been in synagogues, cathedrals, everywhere you can go, read books, talked to rabbis, priests, preachers. Man, I'd been through the whole nine yards. And all the time, I was waiting for something to happen to me so I would know I was dealing with a real thing and not some scam. And it never happened. I kept waiting for the bush to talk or walk on water or just ankle deep in the water would be okay. I just... something. And it wasn't happening for me. And you know, the people at the Alcoholics Anonymous were merciless. They talked about this God thing all the time. And finally I got one of them. I waited for the God squad to come and tell me what I was going to have to believe. And I don't know where they were. They wouldn't come. 
Finally, I was frustrated, and I got some of them off the side, and I said, what do I have to believe about God? And they said, whatever you want to believe. I said, well, I don't know what to believe. And they said, we don't know what you, you know, we can't make you believe anything. You, belief is a personal thing. You can only believe what you can believe. So believe the Coke machine's God if you want to. I said, what in the hell are you talking about? They said, well, you put a quarter in the top of it, and the Coke comes out the bottom. It's kind of a miracle. I said, it won't last you long, but you can start anywhere. All you have to be willing to do is believe what you can and put aside everything you don't believe. All your life you've been torn between what you could believe and what you don't believe. So you just sit there frozen in the middle. Get rid of what you don't believe. Don't pay any attention to it. Only thing you've got to do is be willing to pick some of that stuff up again later if you can believe it. I began to look at that. Selfishness and self-centeredness. What is that? The first time I read that portion of the book, I, or got to it, I skipped it. Why should I read about your problems? I wasn't selfish. I wasn't self-centered. Let's find something over here that applies to me. The clear promise of the book was, however, that this thing called selfishness and self-centeredness was what was keeping me from finding this power I was looking for. Never thought about that. That there was something inside me that I created called self that stood between me and the great reality deep inside me. And the promise was that if I could find that self-centeredness, tell someone about it, recognize what it had done in my life, do what I could to be free of it, that I would have help getting rid of it, and I would see the power. Not only would I see the power, I would experience the power. It would happen to me. In a vision for you, it talks about the young man and his wife who left those early meetings. And it says they had seen a miracle, and one had come to them. And they couldn't wait to go tell someone else about it. And all throughout Alcoholics Anonymous, I hear people talking about their miracle. And because of the example set for me, I began to look for self-centeredness. I was so arrogant. You see, I had made more money every year I had ever worked. I had more financially than I ever thought I was going to have. I had achieved position in my profession, in my community. And none of it was worth anything. I knew that all of that stuff was fairly useless. That wasn't going to make me happy. But I really thought I had managed my life pretty well, except for this thing called drinking. And I couldn't do that very well. And I was having a hard time listening to that part of our program that talked about self-centeredness and unmanageability. One night I was in a meeting, and... I don't know why I remembered that during the period of time I was sitting in my green chair taking the test on a nightly basis. I had acquired an aquarium. I was in a pet store one day and I saw this aquarium. I was tired of watching television. 
I watched a lot of television from my green chair. I saw it when there were pictures on it, and sometimes there was just snow way late. And I got bored with it. And I bought me an aquarium. And I got the size aquarium I wanted, and I put it between my chair and the wall. And I put the color gravel in the bottom of it that I wanted. I selected the type of plants that I liked. I liked leafy, fern-like plants that kind of gracefully move up to the surface of the water. And I put the kind of fish in it I liked. I liked pretty, slow-swimming fish. I put a light on the top of it. I could make it daylight or I could make it dark. I fed my fish, if they were to be fed. Sometimes it was a land of plenty and sometimes there was a famine upon the land. And I loved my fish. I could get just completely out of it, sitting there drinking whiskey and dreaming wild dreams and watching my fish glide around. Just loved to watch it. Never tired of it. But in that meeting that night, I remembered, wait a minute. In that idyllic world inside that bowl, there was always one damn fish. Generally a bowl cleaner or a utilitarian, little uglier fish. And he would, for some reason, begin to swim up to the prettiest fish, generally my favorite one, and nip him on the tail. And as you nipped him on the tail, the pretty fish would speed up and begin to swim faster. And the bad fish would follow, and they'd begin to pass fish and run into fish, and fish would be going every damn direction, and there was chaos in the fishbowl, and it drove me crazy. <laughs> and I would reach out there and slap the side of that bowl, boy, let them know there's a power greater than they are that is so unhappy. <laughs> and I said, stop for a minute. And I was fair. I was fair. I practiced the mystical rule of threes. I gave them three chances to recognize that they were causing a problem in their life. You'd think they'd learned, but some didn't. And so I felt that those, ne those fish needed a little more hands-on treatment from the power. A real personal experience with the power. So I got me a little dip net, and I would catch the bad fish, pull him out of the water, hold him on my lap, and have a drink. Salute. <laughs> I would hold the bad fish until he got real still. <laughs> then I would put him back in the water. There are fish lovers here, I'm sure, and I would like to report to you that if you keep them out too long, they float. <clears throat> if they float, they're gone. But my timing was pretty good most of the time, and I gave them three claps of thunder and three dip-nap treatments. And then you've done about all you can do. You would know that they would learn, but i got to tell you, there are such unfortunates. They seem to be born that way. The seventh time, which is another mystical number, that they offended me, I took my dip net and got them, pulled them out of the water, looked neither left nor right, and flushed them down the commode. Is what I did. 
and bought myself another fish. No one knew I was playing that game. Not a soul in the world had any idea. My turn, I was doing a 12-step call one night in the hospital, and my son was a doctor there. And he was standing in the back corner of the room, supposedly being quiet and not interfering with my presentation. And I was, this little girl was real sad, and I was telling her about my fish. And I got to the part where I flushed them down the commode, and my son from the back room said, My God, I wondered where all those fish went. Uh, that night in that meeting, as I remembered all this, I uh, suddenly dawned on me that unmanageability, hell, I can't even manage a fishbowl. <laughs> Self-centeredness, not many 40-year-old men get upset about what fish are doing in a fishbowl. <laughs> not too many people take that personally, but I did. <laughs> and then it becomes just like everything else. You know, once you break the dike, it becomes a flood. You suddenly realize that all of your life has been been centered around yourself. You've been taking everything that happened personally. Traffic on the freeway. I have a lane. It's called my lane. Whatever happens in my lane is my damn business. Don't mess with me in my lane. We're supposed to travel my speed in my lane. Don't honk at me from the rear. I'll stop. Don't cut in front of me in my lane because I have all power. I can switch to another lane. That becomes my lane. I will pass you and run you off the road. If I don't punish you, who will? It cut across every area of my life. This intense classification of information of what was going on around me to things that affected me, and almost everything did, I couldn't see anything in reality. You never see the world as it really is. You see it as you really are. And while I was in that state, I couldn't see anything in reality. I had no chance. And I'm looking for the great reality, and it's deep inside me, and I've got to get through that. And as I I learned about that in my program, big things happened to me. I became fallible. When I told somebody about those things, I became vulnerable. I had nothing else to hide. When I just finished my fifth step and walked to the AA meeting, I looked around and felt like I paid my dues. And I began to corner people as they had cornered me and say, how are you doing? And they said, well, I've got a little hangnail this week. And I'd say, have you taken your fourth step? <laughs> Everything revolved around that. I became an expert, you know, on four steps right away. But pretty soon I recognized that was self-centered as well. And I don't know when it happened to me, but one night I was given a great gift. I was on the way to a meeting. I had had a long, hard week, and I was tired, pushed. And I thought, why are you going to a meeting? You're not going to get drunk tonight. The need to drink had left me a long while back. Why are you going to a meeting? The answer was, because you want to go. I once went to meetings because I had to go to meetings. And of course I always need them, but I was going because I liked what was happening there. I was excited about the prospect of whether Sally had got her kids back. Whether Joe had got a job. Did the new guy show up again the second day? 
I knew, I knew I was in the middle of something. I was, I was seeing things happening that I had never seen before in my life. It was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. Those of you who stood up with less than five years, I'll tell you what, the first five years in Alcoholics Anonymous were the most exciting period in my life. I learned more in those five years about living and life and useful information than I've learned before or since. It was, it was wild. I'd get so excited I couldn't even remember all the things I learned at meetings. I began to take, rush home and take notes so I could write down all this heavy stuff I was getting one day at a time. Ah, one day at a time. I understood what that meant. Live and let live. Leave the fish alone. Uh, It began to make differences in my life. I began to react differently toward my kids. I tried to control my son's life because I was living my life through him. One day I was able to tell him, Mike, I'm not going to go to any more of your football practices. I'm not going to critique any of your coaches, the officials after football games. I am going to watch you play the game, wish you well, have some fun. And he thought he was rejected for a little while, and then he began to recognize he really had it real good for a while. He didn't like having his dad in fights with umpires and things like that. My daughter, I was able to recognize that I'd neglected her, and I didn't want that. And when I got in the program, I wanted a relationship with her, and I began to try to get it, and I couldn't. She wouldn't. Takes two. Takes two to have it, and she was used not to having me. And I told my wife, sought advice from my wife, of all things. I said, what am I going to do to get something going with Karen? And she said, take her to dinner. I said, would she go? And she said, I don't know. Ask her. So I asked her, would you go to dinner with me? And she said, why? I said, I'd like to, uh, I'd just like to take you to dinner in a nice place and get to know you. She said, where are we going? I said, anywhere you want to go. When? Anytime you'll go. Okay. And so we went. And for several weeks, I asked her out once a week. And for an hour, I'd sit and talk with her and listen to her. Try to be a part of her life. And then I didn't ask her. I stopped. Because I didn't want to impose my will on her. I wanted this to be a free relationship. In the first week, she didn't say a word. In the second week, she didn't say a word. And I thought, well, so much for that. Third week, she came in and said, Daddy, aren't we ever going to go to dinner anymore? And I said, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we do. She gave me a granddaughter a little while ago. My son was able to come to me without fear and say, I messed up in medical school. I've been drinking too much. What would you do? What would AA do about this? And a little while later, he came and told me he joined Alcoholics Anonymous. He's given me two grandkids. Our life is sweet and good and together. I'm in their life because they want me in their life. And that's so good. That's so good. My relationship with my wife got better. I wouldn't let her go to open meetings with me for a long time because... She had poisoned the well everywhere she'd been. <laughs> but finally, with some reluctance, I 
allowed her to go with me. And we began to meet other AA couples and go to AA conferences and work with other AA folks. And we have purpose in our lives today. We frequently, and this just this other day, we had a, a couple of civilians, we call them, who were old friends of ours from college who were sitting in a meeting with us or, uh, in, our, in our home with a group of AA couples. And we said, we're going to have a little meeting. These people said, we're going to do what? And uh, So we're going to have a little meeting. And we, tr- we talked to them. We told them what we were going to do. We just had a little visit, a little open meeting there, sharing about our feelings about life and that sort of thing. And they, they marveled at the depth that we could communicate with one another. It's an open book for us. I don't know where the people go that are not here tonight. We've been given such a marvelous gift. I don't want to ever lose this. This has been the most important thing easily in my life. It has a very high priority in my life. You've taught me how to live. You've told me to put God first and everything else will work. And if I keep my priorities lined up properly where my work is about number four, I'm okay. Anytime work gets to number be number one, I'm screwed up. Anytime anything gets ahead of that relationship with that higher power, I'm messed up. I have a healthy concern for Alcoholics Anonymous. My concern comes from what's been going on for a while. There's been an avalanche of people coming to Alcoholics Anonymous for a long while. Treatment centers everywhere have sent us their graduates. Uh, some of them are alcoholics and some of them are other things and some of them are mixed. And I wish them all well. I really do. I don't have any issue with this. I ask my, I don't worry about who goes to AA. I worry about why am I going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think everything else, if I stay close to the basic principle, will work for me. But I worry about people finding solutions other than the gift that we have been given. I went on a trip to Europe uh, about a month ago, and I went to Greece, and I saw some really old places. I was standing at a Mycenaean temple that was about 5,000 years old. They had running water in that temple. And next door to it was a, was a museum where they had dug up a lot of the materials there. And I was talking to this guide, and she was showing the artwork that was found in this temple. And it was exquisite. It was beautiful work. We couldn't do any better today. And then we went to another case, and it said that it had been done nearer the present than the first. But it looked like kid stuff. It looked like a first grader had made this this works of art. It's 200 years further along than they were. They'd gone backwards. And I said, what happened here? And she said, oh, they forgot their purpose as artisans. And they began to have conquest, try to own the world. And they lost the gift. We need to stay close to our purpose. We need to recognize that we have the solution here. We have the solution, if you're an alcoholic, to all your problems here. Now, I'm not knocking therapists, and I'm not knocking other 12-step groups, but I see too many people today who are doing three steps and four programs and saying they're in a 12-step program. It won't work. 
takes all 12. And they need to be in one program with one sponsor aimed in one direction. If you're going to, don't forget, this thing has revolutionized the world. If this world ever changes, if this world ever becomes a better place, it will be because every person in it becomes a better person and not because they enact some laws or sign a treaty or do something like that. And we are a grassroots movement for good. And we shouldn't short ourselves any here. We really and truly should not short ourselves. We have been given a great and beautiful gift. Let's not lose it. Because we also must recognize the reality of the situation is that we're in the middle of an epidemic. It's drugs and alcohol and chemicals of every form. It's hitting our kids younger. It's chaotic out there. And you and I represent the only real chance this world has got. The only real chance those kids have got to come out of that deal and go anywhere else. And AA was here for you. The first generation is already gone. A generation that even knew Bill and Bob is almost totally gone. They weren't supermen. They were just...